0: invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn again to the letter of 1 Peter. It's almost at the end of the Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1015, which brings us to chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Just to remind you that uh, Peter uh, wrote, wrote this, and he was one of the disciples of Jesus. You remember that he left a fishing business, a family fishing business, to follow Jesus. And he was a man who became the uh, informal leader of the disciples. uh, And he was the one, most memorable, who denied Jesus three times on the night Jesus was arrested. And yet we see that Jesus restored Peter to ministry, a great lesson for all of us there. And that he was the one, after the ascension of Jesus, that was the first main preacher preached there in Jerusalem on that first uh, J- Jewish holiday, the day of Pentecost, and and uh, 3,000 people were, were added uh, that day to the kingdom that responded uh, in faith. And so Peter went on to have quite a ministry. We read a lot about that in the opening half, first half of the book of Acts, and then the emphasis becomes... The Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. Uh, History tells us that Peter himself was crucified, uh, even upside down, for his commitment to Christ. But what we've seen so far this summer in some of the sermons from 1 Peter is that uh, he's developing what we'd call a theology of the Christian life. An understanding of how not only a person comes to faith in Christ, but how he or she grows in that faith. And he stresses that we need to have hope in this world. Uh, that we should be rooted in the resurrection of Christ. And he reminds us that, that as we face trials and suffering and troubles, that we can do so with joy uh, because God can strengthen our, our faith. We are the new people of God. If you were here last week, we saw how in the opening part of chapter 2 that, that God has a, an analogy that we as believers are like living stones in this large building that he is making. And God is the overseer. He's the architect of this building. And I mentioned that an architect doesn't make a beautiful building out of beautiful materials, but a beautiful building out of just ordinary materials, which is us. And yet we become priests. We are a chosen race of people belonging to God. We are his possession, and because of that we have great value. I mentioned how very ordinary things, often when they have been owned by a very... Uh, unusual people, famous people, then they become very valuable. And God owns us, and we are his possession in Christ, and so you have great value. Others may not necessarily see you that way, or the world may not treat you that way, and yet we are precious in the sight of God because we belong to him. Now, up to this point, up to chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, uh, Peter pretty much has focused on believers the believers to whom he's writing that themselves are going under, undergoing some level of persecution. But he's focused on their relationships to God and their relationships to one another and their own spiritual maturity. Um, and he, he reminds us that in verse 9 that the reason God has done this in our lives, he's chosen us, he's made us a royal priesthood, is that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So God has adopted us. He's made us his people that we in turn might uh, advertise is the word for proclaim, that we might advertise, that we might make that known to others who are in darkness. That's why God has left us here. There's no doubt. I mean, he could redeem us and, and immediately take us to be with him in heaven. But that's not his plan. But how do we relate to the world? That's where this chapter is going to go now. How are Christians to live in relation to a hostile culture? As theirs definitely was, as ours is growing more and more, more so almost by the day. What should your attitude be toward it? Now let me ask you a question, those of you that are older. I'm 58 years old. I mean, yesterday I can remember things from my childhood like they happened five minutes ago. But let me ask you something, those that are older, my age and older, can you imagine being a seventh grader today and trying to figure out how to live this stuff in today's culture? That, If you think about that for a long time, when every means of popular communication, music, television, movies, is all going in a different direction, and it's saying, no, this is normal, this is normal, this is normal. Oh, what you believe over that? Well, that's, you hate people and, and you're abnormal. And, uh, and people like you shouldn't exist. You're just a bigot. Or whatever it might be. Can you imagine? And I think that's why so many get disillusioned say it just it can't fit real life. Well, it can. It can. And this passage will help. This passage helps a great deal. Well, look at verse 11. We're just going to look. Have I read it yet? Have, okay, I haven't. Okay. <laughs> I told you I'm 58. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, I'm going to focus on verses 11 and 12. This is part one of a two-part sermon on the powerful witness of Christian submission. But we really won't get to the submission part until next week. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, note note how he addresses him, beloved. He doesn't write to to be critical toward them, to be harsh toward them. This is a pastor. He loves them. He's concerned about them. He's a friend, and so when he says beloved, he he meant that. He loved these people. If you and I are to influence others for Christ, in any way there must be a basic love and concern it would seem obvious but sometimes i don't know about you but i can be around christians or professing christians and they give the impression to me that they can't stand people they the perfect life to them would be to have no contact with anybody either they're not spiritual enough or they believe the wrong things or they act the wrong way or they don't they don't live up to whatever expectations are there we can learn from peter He cared for those people to whom he was ministering. So he begins with this note of affection and acceptance. And then he calls them sojourners and exiles. Depending on the Bible version, the translation in front of you, it may say aliens, it may say pilgrims. Essentially, they mean the same things. But he says, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles. When you urge somebody, you're not just inviting them to something. You are pleading with them to do something. An exile, or a pilgrim, or a sojourner, or an alien is a person who's living in a foreign country who is not a citizen of that country. That's what he means. You're living somewhere, but you're not a citizen. It's not a tourist who's just there for a little while and then plans to go back home. An exile, or a sojourner, is there more or less to stay. They're going to stay put in that foreign land pilgrims in a foreign land he says that because our citizenship believer is in heaven that's the emphasis here that we are living we are not there yet we will eventually get there but that's where our citizenship that is home now many of you have traveled cross-culturally to other countries and and if you've grown up here in the United States, and I've been around missionaries enough and taken short-term mission trips enough to where they talk about the importance of trying to figure out the cultural keys, the cultural keys in another culture. Why, how do things work here? Far beyond the language, but what's the underlying assumptions? Some of us are going back to Haiti in several weeks, and I can promise you, there are no cultural keys there. Somebody threw the keys away long ago trying to figure out how this how things work how it moves it's difficult well here we are exiles we are uh we are trying to figure out the cultural keys you might say because our uh, our citizenship is in heaven now the minute you come to faith in Christ the minute a person is converted when they come to believe the the bad news and the good news that that Jesus lived a perfect life and he was the redeemer the messiah that god sent and when he died on the cross then the crimes that you and i commit against god that the sins we've committed against him that christ took the sins of his people on him and he was punished in their place he's put to death showing that he truly paid the penalty for sin which was death 3 days later he ra- raised physically bodily from the grave he appeared to hundreds of people over a 40 day period before he ascended to the right hand of god declaring that he's victorious over sin and over death And now when we believe that and we trust in that, we become his children. And we then are immediately made citizens of heaven. Uh, We become, at that moment, exiles. And I'm not talking about exiles from the United States or exiles from Canada. I'm talking about exiles in this world, that this world is not our home. So you should recognize who you are as a believer, a citizen in heaven. And what you are not, you're not a citizen of this world. Therefore, you will feel strange as though you don't belong. Well, how then should we live? Back to the seventh grader facing today's culture. Back to the uh, 40-year-old trying to make sense of the Christian faith in today's culture that's just battling you on every front. Uh, What do you do? Well, all Christians have faced that. How do Christians relate to culture, the culture around them? And historically, there have been three basic approaches. One is just to isolate from the culture, like the monastic movement. Well, we're believers. We believe that, that there's a God, that we should live a certain way, but the way to do that is we will separate ourselves into our communities, and we will live, we will provide food, we will do all that, and we'll venture out every once in a while to maybe feed the poor, And think, but by and large, life is lived in the monastery. Isolation, that's one approach. The other swings the pendulum to the other side, and it's identification. Well, the only way to really be salt and light in the world is just to identify with the world. So you immerse yourself. You adopt the cultures, the thinking, the philosophy, and what typically happens in that case is the salt loses its savor. It looks so much like the world and thinks like the world and acts like the world that there's no distinction. The Reformation came along and we have what's called a Christian worldview where we look at all of life from, seek to from God's perspective, from God's word, that you do all things to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink or everything we do, then how can I do this to God's glory? And that's, that is where we talk about uh, discerning engagement or critical engagement with the culture, incarnational engagement. And that is how do I live out my faith in a hostile culture and seek to be salt and light at the same time in order to reach people. Critical engagement. Well, that's pretty much what Peter is describing here. And he begins by telling us, by giving us a warning or an admonition of something not to do. In verse 11, he says, as sojourners and aliens to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul." To abstain means to have nothing to do with it. He doesn't say do not love the passions of the flesh. He doesn't say avoid the passions of the flesh. He says abstain, which is avoid them at all cost. Avoid them at all cost. And there's no qualification. There's no it depends here. Since the Malaysians yet was shot down, the passenger flight over the Ukraine. I, I, I don't know if you'd be like me, but I'm kind of a news junkie anyway, and I watch the talking heads and all their wisdom to figure out nothing. And they are saying the other morning it's kind of caught me off guard. There's, they were responding to someone who had sent an email asking, Is it, I do a lot of business travel. Is it safe for me to fly over certain parts of the world if my boss says, well, you've got to do this for a business trip? And at the end of the, you know, the answer of, well, you need to, I I thought they were talking about the weather. You need to check this, go to this website and see about this, see how the conflict is that day. Then you tell your boss whether you'll make the trip or not. This was helpful. It boiled down. Well, you could have saved us all some time. Just said, well, it depends. It depends. It depends on uh, lots of things, whether that will be safe or not. There's no, it depends here. He doesn't say, well, it depends on how the passions of the flesh are that day. No, it's just a blanket. Avoid these, abstain from these. Now, what are the passions of the flesh? Before you immediately assume, well, he's just talking about immoral sexual matters, it's much broader than that. Okay, this phrase is much broader. Passions of the flesh essentially means the desires that you and I have, which are of the world that displace the lordship of Christ in our life. So it can be anything. It can be something good. It's not necessarily something sinful in and of itself. It can be craving for success. It can be craving acceptance by others. It can be accomplishment of a goal of education or someone that says, well, I just, I just got to be married or my life won't have meaning or I'll, I'll always be less than I should be. It can be anything like that. And he's saying avoid those and look at the terminology, why they wage war against your soul. This is not a game. You have a soul that will never die. Uh, It is who you are. God gave you that soul and your soul is your most important possession, so to speak. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And if the soul is lost, the whole person is lost. There's no way to negotiate it back. When this war against the soul is over, it's over. And our world, our culture, here's one way of worldly thinking, is totally consumed with the temporal, with the here and now how something feels, how something looks, how you feel and look right now, and temporalness, temporal. what you, had, how, what you drive, what you, where you live, what, what you have, the, the honors you get. There's no interest or even acknowledgement of the eternal, the fact that this is just a blip on the screen. When I was in college, I heard a person lay it out like this. If this could be all of time, and from eternity past to eternity future, and your life is one dot on this long line, just a tiny dot, the finest point that could be made, that's your whole life. Whether that's 50, 80, or 95 years, that's it. What are you going to do with that? You know, How will you invest that small thing? Now, the interesting thing is this war, these passions of the flesh, are all unique. My battles are not your battles. Your battles are not my battles. It probably varies to some degree with all of us. I had that brought home to me right out of college. My college roommate for over two years, uh, well, let me tell you about my I grew up, uh, my father and my mother both were uh, from impoverished backgrounds. Now, they were depression kids, but they were not privileged at all. They, their families pretty much lost everything during the Depression. So I heard my dad my whole life, though he went on to become a lawyer and a judge, he would talk about his keen memories of having two shirts to wear throughout high school and being sent to live with relatives down in Florida because the, his mom and dad, and he was an only child, could not feed him. So some of you know what I'm talking about by your own experience. Well, in they... He, his family pulled together everything to get him through law school, which back in those days, you didn't get an undergraduate degree and a law degree. You just got a law degree. So his father, who never had more than a fifth grade education, was just elated when my dad graduated from law. It was, just, they, it was a dream come true. My mother was one of uh, like seven kids, and she had to work from the time she got out of high school. So she never went to college until I got into junior high school. And she was was smart, real smart, and a uh, reader, read all the time. So she went back to school because she wanted to teach in a Christian school, and she wanted to teach English and history, which she did. So as a high school junior, I attended my mother's college graduation from Jacksonville State University over in Alabama. I'm telling you that because when I went to college, my closest friend, and he's still a close friend to this day, I just talked to him about two weeks ago on the phone, grew up in Mountain Brook. Do I need to say more? Okay, if you know Birmingham, you know Mountain Brook, it, it would be like Buckhead uh, to a certain extent, but it, it's old money. <laughs> uh, so he uh, very, had become a Christian through young life in high school. We both arrived at college, and we were committed to Christ. Uh, and, but there was a huge difference between us. Though we were the same age, his father had died when he was about in the eighth grade. So he had had to become the father of that family, his mother, an older sister, and a younger brother. I would come back to the apartment, and he would be reading the Wall Street Journal. He kept up with all the family stocks. He invested those stocks, and he, and he kept all the, did all the taxes for the family. He would do all the income taxes there at the desk in, in our apartment. And when he was growing up, he told me that... He had one of two goals. His goal was to be one of two things, and he was not joking in the least, President of the United States or Supreme Court Justice. And when I would grin, he wouldn't. He was dead serious. He had that kind of confidence that I think God's going to put me in one of those two positions. So we uh, make a long story short. uh, I had to go to college next extra semester while we were here taking a victory lap. (laughs) And he goes on to Vanderbilt Law School. At Christmas time. Uh, he and I and some others organized a large ski trip to Colorado. I told you it's from young life and ski trips. To Colorado were their staple items, so that was he would organize these things, and 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 some of us would go free because what everybody else was paying. So there was a, uh, a capitalist angle to it. After they all left, we, we left them at Winter Park. The bus comes back. He and I and another friend, another guy, we uh, we're going to we've got several days before school starts, so we're going to drive. Um, to different ski resorts. So it's, it's real late. The bus with the big group heads back. We leave. Terrible weather. This is between Christmas and New Year's. And we're driving through all the snow and everything. And we drive into Vail like at 11 o'clock on a certain night. No reservations. We're college students, right? You don't think about reservations. Uh, even, even he didn't think about that. And we get to the counter at some condo or hotel I can't remember it was late at night and the guy says wait a minute you drove into Vail with no reservations (laughs) that's what the guy told us well he gets on the phone I guess he felt sorry for us and he finds us a room at the biggest resort they had out there at the time so we go and we stay there and we're on the slope the next day and then that night we go out to eat we're walking around the village this is long this is ancient history and uh he he was kind of agitated and the next morning, we wake up, and he says, I've got to get out of this place. I've got to leave. Well, what he meant was the materialism and all the posturing and all the expensive fashions at that place at that time, and I haven't been since then, but I assume it's the same. Uh, it was doing a number on him. He was, he was in warfare. This is what I was living for. His values had changed, and he was in exile in a foreign land. But it it was really spiritual warfare for him. And so the next day he said, we're leaving. So we drove to Crested Butte without reservations. But that's another story. I didn't even notice the things he was talking about. I had other problems and still do, and many of them. But that was, not, that was not a battlefield I was facing, but it was waging war against his soul. And I'll still hear him reference that. So our battles may all look different, but we've all got them. And Peter says, abstain, abstain from fleshly lust, those things that are waging war against your soul. Let's move on. Verse 12. Then he gives kind of a positive thing to do. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable honorable. R.C. Sproul is reading his book. He says that this word seems to belong to a former era. We rarely refer to someone today as honorable. We probably should, but it's kind of like we don't use that word. But we find it in the Bible. We find it often in the Bible. Think of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. And so this concept in the Bible of honor, it goes beyond respect. It's to bend over backwards to show respect for another person. The closest we have today is in a court of law. There, where if you're in a court of law, I was on jury duty recently, you communicate honor with your words, with your mode of communication, even your body language, to your honor, the judge. Well, he says we're to be honorable, among whom? Among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers. He's using the term Gentile for those who are not part of the covenant community Uh, Non-Christians, that would be our transliteration today. Peter is assuming that you and I as Christians, we will be living in the culture. There's no assumption here of removing ourselves and isolating ourselves to a monastery. He's assuming we will be living among unbelievers, that we've not separated ourselves, that we will be critically engaged with the culture, with the world. And then he goes on and he says, So that when they speak against you as evildoers... He doesn't say if they speak against you. He's reaffirming what Christ said. They will persecute you. You will be spoken against slander, false accusations, have always and will always follow Christians, Christ followers. So this assumes also that unbelievers are watching. They're watching those who profess Christ. And you may not be aware of it. Now, we know from history that in the middle of the first century, uh, just about the time this was written, Christians were a distinct minority. Often they were the the object of slander, of prejudice, and persecution, primarily because they refused to worship, to participate in emperor worship. Uh, They faced false accusations that often resulted in suffering and in death because they referred to fellow Christians as brothers and sisters. They were accused of incest because they referred to the Lord's Supper as eating and drinking the Lord's body and blood, they were accused of cannibalism. The Emperor Nero, in order to suppress the rumor that he had set fire to Rome, he blamed it on the Christians and made them scapegoats by his slander. But Peter is saying when that happens, the strongest rebuttal, the strongest defense are good deeds on the part of Christ's followers. Now, he's going to address later in this letter about being ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. So he's going to talk about our speech later. But right here, false accusations, it says it's the testimony of good deeds that will silence others. What are good deeds? Well, he wants us to be living testimonies of his love and mercy, our conduct, our character, our Confessions ought not be a stumbling block for unbelieving neighbors. Our lifestyle should be distinctively Christian. And as nonbelievers scrutinize the conduct of believers and they hear false accusations, they should see good deeds. Now, let me be technical about one thing. When you read that verse, they is used a couple of times. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. It's my opinion, I'm kind of living with this passage this week, that it's two groups of they. I think that the they, the first part, are those slandering believers, you know, misrepresenting them and that that's, those are unbelievers, but also there's another they group that when they hear the false accusations, it's almost as though when they hear, well, those people, they hate people, and they don't love people, and they, they just, they're really hard toward everybody. They've watched the good deeds and go, huh? <laughs> that isn't true. That's the way I see it, that it's not necessarily the one group uh, there, but that's, that's a, a, a minor point. Now, notice, though, as this happens, as nonbelievers scrutinize, they see the good works. What is the ultimate aim? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the climax. That's where everything is heading. They will glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is the word for it in the Old Testament. The phrase was the day of the Lord. It was looked forward to by the covenant people of Israel. The day of the Lord. But then as they fell into sin and rebellion, they dreaded it because now it's the day of the Lord. The Lord's going to come with judgment. In the New Testament, we have the phrase, the day of visitation or the day of the Lord, when our heavenly visitor, the word there is bishop, the bishop. When the heavenly bishop and the heavenly general comes and when he comes, what will he find? Will he find faith on the earth? So we we anticipate this. But the best interpretation of this seems to be that these unbelievers will become believers as well through the witness of Christians. So what's the ultimate goal of this? Their redemption. So why do you need to obey verse 11? Why do you need to abstain from fleshly passions? Why do you need to show honor to others like that? For your sake? Yes. But here is for their sake. Now back to how do you live out your faith in today's culture. Unbelievers need you to obey the Lord. Unbelievers need you and me to be 100% committed to Christ. And there's something inside of us, and maybe it's the signs of the times that we think that will freak them out. I need to modulate this thing back a little bit. Or they're going to think I'm a fanatic. (laughs) Or they're going to think I'm nuts. So I need to just, you know, lay low. That's not what they need. Unbelievers need to see people for whom God is everything. And that's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, by our good deeds, and he's, this isn't all he's going to say. He's going to say more, that there will be those that will glorify God in the day of visitation because of it. They need to see honesty and truthfulness and integrity and sticking with your commitments and generosity and service to others and faithfulness to family and honoring your parents and respecting authority and doing your work with diligence and a mouth that speaks truth and edifies others and good deeds. Now, what are the good deeds? Well, you don't have to look far like in the book of James. It gets very specific there. We know about the character things I just mentioned, but he says this is true in undefiled religion to... To visit orphans and widows in their distress. That's very specific, with a great need at that time. Do you, do you like to ask yourself, what if? What if uh, this had happened? What if I had made a, a good decision rather than a bad decision? What if I had not driven down the road that day and had that car accident? Or what if? I like to ask what if, and here's what I've been thinking lately. What if you and I and every person in this congregation this week were to live out our commitment to Christ with zeal and integrity and truthfulness wholeheartedly? What might happen, not just in our lives, but in the lives of unbelievers who would see that with whom we have contact? What if? What if 50 of us did it? What if 100? What if 300 people? This Friday... Bibb County School start. Our son Stephen is in the special education department, so we are greatly looking forward to the bus being back at our house at about 6.40 and having him that day. So that's, we love our son, but it is uh, it is high energy. And so Bibb County schools will be starting, so I've been thinking, well, okay, James mentions orphans and widows. Uh, you t- we've got a lot of kids uh, and especially think about Pleasant Hill they're practical orphans I would say they don't necessarily live with a mom or a dad uh, what could we do? so I was thinking recently how is our church positioned how has God resourced us and I would assume my observation and this is no way objective, this is just off the top of my head I assume most of us here have high school diplomas Would you? I, I think most people would assume that Maybe not everybody, but most of us. I would even assume that that most of us have college degrees. Not everybody, but most. And I know a number of us here have graduate degrees. You've got masters or more than one master's, and several have PhDs or some other uh, type of graduate degree. So God has blessed us with education. We are resourced as educated people. I would assume... That in at least in Middle Georgia, that percentage wise, we are as highly educated, formally at least, as any church out there. Probably more. Okay? I'm just trying to state a fact. So I called over to campus clubs and I said, Do y'all need tutors? Do y'all need tutors for these kids? I don't know if Pete's here, but Pete said, Yeah. So how many kids do we all have? Starting in the middle of I guess Maybe it's the 13th of August, but over the next couple of weeks. He said, 133. Okay. What ages? 4K to 10th grade. Okay. What's the minimum amount somebody could give of time to tutor? 30 minutes once a week is what he said. I hope he was right, Robin. I see you back there. Robin's the director. And he said, 30 minutes once a week. I said, you offer any training? He said, Well, we kind of, people just want to hang out with kids and be a volunteer, no, but he said, We'll get you set up. All you're doing is helping them with their homework. So, I was thinking, Well, what if 10 of us or 50 of us volunteered the next four months between now and Christmas just to go tutor? Um, I was told by somebody after the first service they tutored once 10th grade math, and that was a huge mistake. They couldn't even study it themselves. But maybe you could do 4K reading or 5K. Can you carry, let's get real, can you handle a crayon? (laughs) Well, I'm going to volunteer. I'm kind of nervous about it, so I want some company. So how about volunteering and pray with them? You say, well, wait a minute, now you're specifying what's a good deed or not. I'm not imputing motives. I don't know what your motives are. Uh, You'll sort that out between you and the Lord. But there's a need there. There's a need in something we can do that God has probably equipped most of us in some fashion or form, if our schedules work, uh, that, that we can do that. Uh, imagine if you could tutor. Imagine if you pray before you start the lesson, saying, Lord, help, help little Sam here to learn this, and I'll try to help him. Help me to learn it too, Lord, as I try to help, help him. What if 10 of us did that the next four months? What if 25 or 50 how might the Lord use this in the lives of these children or their relatives who might then come to glorify God on the day of visitation? So here's my point. I'm ending. I'm finished. Isn't this exciting that what you and I do in the name of Christ might be instrumental in someone else's eternal destiny? And that is what Peter is saying right here in First Peter 2, 11 and 12. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have left us here, that we might proclaim your excellencies among those who don't know, that you might transfer people from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, that you might use us toward that end in this culture that grows ever darker. But great opportunities now, Father, to serve and to lift up your name and to show forth Christian, true Christian uh, compassion. Uh, Lead us, guide us, help us to be faithful servants who are ready, who are ready and have our lamps trimmed for when you do return on the great day of visitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.